When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I'm sitting here in the room that I record in and someone at the Good 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 offices just brought in some red and green mint M&Ms and some Christmas cookies and I'm just soaking in the week before Christmas. Somehow this week I've been finding myself quoting the artist Chantel Martin in a number of conversations with friends and loved ones. I had Chantel on the podcast more than a year and a half ago And I'm still so struck by the fact that I got to talk with her. I wanted to re-air this episode this week because something just felt fitting about it. It's 0% a holiday-themed episode, but something about me just felt like this was the week that I wanted to hear it again, and I wanted to share it with you. I love that we dove into these ideas of finding your way to yay and experiencing the art of wonder, which are the things that I've been somehow having lots of conversations about this week. If you don't know who Chantel is, let me tell you, she is amazing. British visual artist Chantel Martin has originated her work upon the foundations of these two key questions. Who are you? And are you, you? After moving to New York from Tokyo, she became best known for creating stream of consciousness drawings and light projects with childlike wonder and joy. Her artwork, which is mainly lines and stick figures, has appeared in the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora, as well as many other well-known venues in New York. And you've also maybe seen her work in Casey Neistat's home or in an American Express ad with Kendrick Lamar or on a wall in Denver or Buffalo or Nashville or Brooklyn. Chantel is amazing. I am so inspired by her work and I'm so excited to talk with her today. I'm Burden Harvey and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. So we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. Chantel's story is incredible. Her art is amazing. And this conversation was so inspiring. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into this conversation. So Chantel, I first saw your work, or at least I'm pretty sure that this was my first time. When I was visiting Nashville, I was dating my now wife long distance. I lived in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I went to what is now my absolute favorite restaurant in Nashville, Rolf and Daughters. Their their pasta is so good. Their Garganelli Verde. Um, And I saw this beautiful artwork all over the wall outside their building. And uh, I started doing some Googling. I was like, who did this amazing work? I love this. And I found you. That's how I came across your work. And I've been a fan ever since. And so now I'm just honored to be talking with you. 
Yeah, that was my first and only time to to Nashville, and uh, I'm I'm really happy that the restaurant is doing well there, and you know it's it's a nice canvas to work with there. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Did you get to eat any of the pasta while you were there? I don't think I did. I, I really need to go back and eat there, and um, especially now the restaurant's <laughs> yeah. been around for a couple of years now. I definitely need to go back. Oh my gosh, you're you're seriously gonna have to. So that was the very first time that I heard of you, and then I started following you online, kind of for the last few years. And then I was in New York out at this Samsung event a few months ago and you were on stage and you were sharing your story and you were doing live public art. And I got just such an impression of childlike wonder in the work that you do, the way that you just, I don't know, you you filled your canvas with so much joy and you had so much creativity that just seemed to be rattling through you as you were creating. And it was really, really fun to see. And it reminded me of this quote that says, the creative adult is the child who has survived. Do you feel like that applies to you? Like, have you been doing art since you were a kid? What does that look like for you? You know, we've all been doing art since we was a kid. Uh, I think the difference is that some of us stop and some of us don't. And um, I definitely love doing the live performances because I'm not a performer, but, you know, if you're in a position where you're drawing live, it keeps you honest and it keeps you vulnerable because it takes away time. And time sometimes is something that allows you to overthink things or allows you to hesitate or it allows you to think too much about what you're doing or it allows you to imitate someone else or it allows you to be let those uh, kind of thoughts creep in that that stop you doing what you're born to do in a way. So drawing live keeps me honest, it keeps me vulnerable, but it also brings out that big kid in me because it's it's just very playful and it's very creative. And and as you saw in, in that show at the Lincoln Center, a question I asked everyone is, if you can draw, put your hand up. And a lot of people didn't put their hand up. And I said, it's crazy. Like, of course you can draw. You did it as a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old, maybe even a seven, eight, nine-year-old. You can draw. And so it's always fun. And I mean, a lot of the work that you do is line drawings. It's stick figures. You know, that's something that people can do. And I love the way that you kind of lay that out and you create, you say, hey, like you can draw lines too. Yeah, I'm not doing anything new. I'm not inventing the wheel What I'm doing is I'm drawing, but I'm drawing in a way that is uniquely mine. And I lived in Japan for five years. And Japan is a very craft-based culture. You know, they they master things over their lifetime, over generations. And starting my career in, in, in such an environment where you see people take one aspect or one craft or one industry and really try and pursue it and master it made me wonder, you know, what's something that I could master in this lifetime? What's something so simple and profound that I could take and master and it would become mine? And I thought, a line, you know, I love drawing. What if I could master a line? And the simplicity of a line And what if that line could then become recognizably mine? And what if that stick figure could become recognizably mine? What if that, you know, that building or that face could become recognizably mine? Then I've achieved something uh, in in this lifetime. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I want to dive more into Japan, but I do want to rewind a little bit to talk about what led you to Japan. And I really want to hone in on this idea of like, you know, we all totally were born artists. And we all created art, but that art manifested itself in different ways for a lot of us. So for me, that art really manifested in me in 
I think I, I like to write stories. I like to tell stories. I like to, I did a lot of writing. For you, was it more in line with drawing? It was totally in line with drawing. And, and this is something I think about a lot. And I think about it quite often because my gift was so accessible. Even though I didn't come from an environment where it was encouraged, it was accessible because it was in the form of a pen or a pencil or a marker. And these are things that we have around us. And, you know, what if you're growing up and you have a gift? We all have a gift, but the application or the tool or the function of that gift isn't accessible to you. It isn't as easy as singing or picking up a pen and drawing or telling your friends jokes or stories. Well, if your gift is in the form of something else, how do you find that? How do you discover that? How do you uh, untap that? And, and, and that's something I do think about a lot. And I do think about how we can encourage people, especially younger people and, and, and even older people, to find that gift and to find that tool. And, and because why are we here if it's not to make and share? And, and for a, you know, a few of us, we're very lucky because we've found that thing that we love to make and share. But what if, if that isn't ex- as accessible to you? Hmm. You spend a lot of time these days drawing all over big spaces, big walls and, and floors and ceilings. And did you draw a lot on your walls growing up? Yeah, I grew on my walls. I got in trouble for it. You know, I drew on my friends, got in trouble for it. I drew on my clothes, <laughs> got in trouble for it. I drew on myself, got in trouble for it. And I really try and encourage, you know, parents now when I when I see them and I, I, I learn that their kids draw. And I'm like, I hope you let them draw on their walls. And I hope you let them draw here. And I hope you let them draw there. Because, you know, we, if, if your child is doing something consistently, it means there's probably a passion involved there. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's good to encourage those versus to discourage them and, and, and take them away. And so as that passion evolved, at what point did you say, I'm going to actually pursue this? I'm going to actually turn this into something that, you know, maybe I'll get to do as my job? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I don't think I've ever actually said that to myself. Um, <laughs> you know, growing up, I didn't know art was a thing. I didn't know that you could be an artist. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in southeast London in a place called Thamesmead, um, you know, one of these big kind of council estate slash projects. Um, and so that, you know, it's a very working class system where you, you go to school, but you probably don't finish school and then you get a job or you, maybe you don't get a job. There isn't a lot of expectations. And so how can you imagine things outside of a system that isn't imagined for you? You know, how can you dream up things that you aren't exposed to and go into school at the time? It's not like we had smartphones and the internet then when I went to school and, um, you know, now I think that stuff is amazing because you can, you have a bigger window to look out and see what people are up to. And, um, you know, then we only had the library and and I super avoided the library. So I didn't even know these things existed. Um, but what I did know is that I guess my nature was a little bit defiant, but also at the same time, I didn't need to follow people. You know, if you look at the school playground, you have, you know, your cool kids, your sport kids, your nerdy kids, these kids, those kids. And I was kind of that kid that just like, I I liked everyone, spoke to everyone, but was quite happy by myself. And so I think, A, just that kind of being an individual helped me kind of uh, do what I wanted without that peer pressure to fit into any group. And I think also just... When I was younger, I I discovered that when I wrote or when I drew, it made me feel better. And then put on top of that, 
I was very good at saying yes to things that I wanted to do. And I was very good at saying no to things that I didn't want to do. And, and, you know, you follow that practice through your life where you don't really know what the goal is. You don't know what your career will be. You don't know what the future will be. But every day you wake up and you say, this is yes. And this is no, this is yes. This is no, this is yes. This is no, this is a no, this is a no, this is a no. And then one day you wake up and you're an artist and, you know, your job is to fly around the world and draw on things, which uh, sometimes I think is quite absurd, but I'm I'm extremely fortunate (laughs) and and happy that that is the case. I love that idea of it just being a lot of you know, you, you kind of simplified it down to a point of it's, it's saying yes to the things you want to do and saying no to the things you don't want to do. Were there times early on where there were things where you're like, man, I don't want to do that, but I feel like that's the next step, you know, in my career, in my opportunity, you know, because I feel like I get those things in my inbox or in my voicemail all the time where it's like, man, what a cool opportunity, but that actually sounds awful to me. You know, it's like we have that internal compass and it's there for a reason and, you know, we can switch it on or we can switch it off or we can choose to ignore it. And as we all know, and probably yourself included, myself included, is that when it does feel like a no and we go ahead and do with it, it doesn't work out. And, <laughs> and as, you know, as good as it pays or as, as, or as much exposure as it might bring or as, 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 as uh, you know, fun the project might seem, if that internal compass is saying no or like kind of maybe or something's off and then we do it we all know by experience that we shouldn't have done and you know I think we we need to stop boiling things down to like if if it's good for my career or if it's not good for my career or even if it's outside of my industry you know I I kind of now I'm in this category of the art world and for some reason you know it's art is meant to be quite quite vast and wide and 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 involve imagination and and involve an artist kind of exploring themselves and and any questions that they want to involve but but for some reason when you work with certain types of industries or mediums then suddenly it's like it's not art it's commercial or it's this or it's that and I think we need to stop thinking about things in that way you know it's not about commercial versus fine art versus research Um, you know for the most part it's all the same it's it's about doing something that feels right, that doing something that you're proud of, doing something to your satisfaction, doing something to the quality that you want to do it, pushing yourself and being able to make something and share something with, with your demographic or a wider demographic that you've not explored before, uh, you know, versus like putting ourselves in boxes. So, you know, I think it's just, it's that simple. It's like, this is a yes, I'll do it. This is a no, I won't do it. That's really good. And it, it, you actually reminded me of this quote from Seth Godin who said that art is anything that's outside of the rule book. And I like that mentality that things that aren't always thought of as art can totally be art because you're exploring new territories, you're trying new things, you're pushing the boundaries of what already exists. Yeah. And even even someone for myself, you know, I think that I'm out of this box and I think that you know, I, I can collaborate with, with brands or with museums or with scientists. Yet that when it comes to something like, oh, I want to make music. Oh, but I'm not a musician. I'm like, wait, like I've just fallen into one of those boxes where we believe that we can't transition industries because you're an architect, you're an artist, you're a musician, you're an actor, you're this. And it's like, no, as long as you bring your full self to what you're doing. And, and you mentioned a little bit earlier 
I think before we started this, this idea of intention, as long as what you're doing has your full self and good intention behind what you're doing, it works. And you could be a, a musician getting into architecture. You could be a scientist getting into, into art. You could be an actor exploring interior design. It doesn't matter. As long as you bring your full self and good intention behind what you're doing, it works. Are you considering pursuing music? Yeah, I have a gig this Friday, actually. No way, for real? That's incredible. So that's funny. So um, I love playing the keyboard and piano. Um, I guess this is more of a recent thing. Yet I have no training. I have no experience. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't play anything twice. People have offered to teach me stuff, and I've said no because... Uh, I like feeling free when I play the piano. You know, if you teach me a chord, then I can do something wrong. But what I've done now is, you know, for me, the lines on the piano, it, it's the same as when I draw lines. You have to approach them confidently. You can't hesitate. You can't think too much. And you just got to play them with feeling and good intention, and it works. And I've done a couple of shows now. And like I said, I have a gig on Friday. And I, it's very spontaneous. It's intuitive. So it means every single show is unique and different because I don't know what I did the first time round. And I'm, I, I think it's kind of refreshing in a way that you don't have to go and rehearse and have this like hit song. I'll never play the same song twice because I don't know actually what I'm playing because I'm playing it in the moment and I'm playing it with feeling and I'm playing it for that crowd and that audience that is in that space at that time. Wow. That's so exciting. That's incredible. I love that you're just like pushing yourself, trying this new thing. It sounds mildly terrifying to be in such a different position, putting yourself outside of, you know, because you're really good at the art that you do and the art that you're known for. So I imagine it's a little bit of a weird feeling to do something that's that could be totally different. It could be received totally differently than the stuff that you know is received well. Yes, but also at the same time, what I realize is that when you when I play, it sounds like a drawing, and that's because I'm behind it. And then I was like, oh, wow, it, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you're behind it, it's going to look like you. It's going to feel like you. It's going to smell like you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to taste like you. It doesn't matter if you get into cooking or this or that. It's, if you're behind it, it it's going to have your style and your rhythm, your character in it, and it's just going to come out in a different way. And, yes, it is scary, and it's embarrassing as well almost because you feel like a little bit of a fraud. Uh, but then, you know, it's that – that fear or that vulnerability is also what keeps you pushing yourself. It what keeps you challenging yourself. And I think there's something really important about presenting that on a stage. That's amazing. I want to bring it back a tiny bit and talk about how did you end up in Japan? Like what was, what was the instigating idea behind being like, I'm going to move from where you were in London. Is yeah. that where you were before? I was in so London. You were in London. You're like, I'm going to go to Japan. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, I went to Campbell College of Arts and I met my first Japanese friend there, Sakura. And I got interested in Japan and Japanese culture and Japanese movies through, through this friend. And then she invited me probably in 1999 or 2000 to, to come and visit her family in Japan, in Saitama. And for me, that was the furthest place on the planet. You know, I didn't know what they ate. I didn't, you know, I knew it was a long flight away. It's just... For me, I had not left the country then, had not traveled really anywhere, probably only France, which, you know, from England isn't a big stretch. 
And then I went for the first time, I think, in 2000 for a holiday, and I stayed for a month in Saitama. And I remember the first few days just crying my eyes out because what she didn't tell me is that, you know, they lived kind of on the side of a mountain in this wooden house where, you know, the windows and doors aren't locked and there's giant bugs and things flying around. Oh, no. And I'm this city kid that grew up, like, in this, you know, concrete jungle. Um <laughs> And, you know, so it was a huge culture shock and didn't know what I was eating, couldn't speak to anyone, was concerned that, you know, living in in the mountain with all these insects and bugs and strangers. And it, it was really tough, but also it, it, it completely like ripped open my world and, and showed me that there was a lot of other things out there. And then instantly what I really related to or I really enjoyed going to Japan for the first time is that I noticed that when people would ask me where I was from I would just say I was from London and then that was it like oh you're from London okay great whereas me at the time people were like oh what are you know going back to London and and being mixed race is that you can't ever just be yourself you can't ever just be from London you know people like oh what are you are you this are you that are you this are you that and you're always having to like explain your like existence and and where you're from in a way and it was really nice to go to a place where you're either foreign or you're Japanese you know you're Nihonjin or you're Gaijin and it (laughs) the world just seemed a lot easier (laughs) um so I think I was quite taken by that idea and and after that trip I went back kind of every year and and stayed with the family and you know got to explore Tokyo a little bit more and and Japan is definitely one of those places where you're instantly attracted or instantly repelled so after you know a few years later I finished art school uh, as you do when you finish art school, you're like, well, now I'm probably going to be unemployed or work in, you know, retail f- for many more years or something like that, because that was my part time job at the time. And I was like, well, you know, rather being in unemployed in London, maybe I'll just go to Japan and teach English for six months or a year. And that's what I did. I, I went to Nagoya first and I taught English for six months and then I quit that job and then moved to Tokyo and, and, and eventually kind of switched teaching with making art and became a VJ in Japan and, and, and lived there for probably just almost five years. And break down your work as a VJ because I think that you're selling yourself a little bit short because the style of of visualization that you created in Japan seems to have become iconic. And I'm not enough in the art world to say uh, whether that's entirely credited to you, but it seems like what you did was really, really innovative and people really latched onto. Yeah, it's a bit of a past life now. And, and I guess one one thing I did in Japan was help pioneer, you know, live drawing and illustrations in the club scene. And and when I say VJ, I mean visual jockey. So, you know, doing visuals to DJs, dancers, musicians in these Japanese huge mega clubs or in the more kind of avant-garde venues. And at the time, and even now, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, VJing is, is, is such a huge scene out there. And, and, and typically, it, you know, there's a couple of guys with, with computers and they're mixing different clips and adding different effects to them. And for me at that time, it just seemed a lot like background. You know, I'd go to these clubs and I love dancing and watching these DJs and they would have these giant screens with these visuals on. And the, the visuals never moved me or, or never really seemed to uh, relate to, to me in any way. And I was like, well, 
you know, firstly, like clubs are really expensive to get into in Japan. And I love dancing. I'd I'd like to do this three or four times a week if I could, you know, and um, how, how can I get into clubs without paying? And I was like, oh, I could VJ. So I ended up starting this career as a VJ, but instead of, of, of mixing clips, I would draw. And, and what instantly that did is it took the visuals from the background to the foreground because I could instantly react to the environment and the songs and the words and and the experience in the space and you know if the crowd was like going crazy and shouting woo you know I could write woo and zoom that in and zoom that out and move it around and if there were certain lyrics or words that came into songs I could write those out and move those around and you know if I saw a friend walk into the venue I could write their name up and and, and, you know, like, you know, if people were swinging their arms around, if, if there was a projector kind of near them, I would swing that around there. And, and I think what they did is it helped create this kind of movement of, of, of bringing visuals in these spaces into the foreground. And, you know, we see a lot now of, um, of projections interacting with people and, and stuff like that. And, you know, and that's kind of what I was doing more than 10 years ago or something now and um and it it was interesting as well because I also got to beta test um and launch a lot of products um kind of electronically and you have like the Wacom tablets for example and I uh beta tested their first like bluetooth tablets and I would take them into the middle of the crowd and be drawing while my drawing is, you know, projected onto these like giant screens. So you'd see me in the middle of the dance floor dancing, drawing on this tablet um, and creating these drawings live in real time. So it was it was definitely like a, a fun past life. And, and, you know, the work was very colorful and um, and and very digital, but also quite Zen like in a way, because I would at the end of my shows, I would close my computer, not save anything, go home because I would say, you know, I want, I want the work to live on in the experience of people that are in this room at this time. I don't need to record it or be precious over it. I just wanted to come and experience it. And and then, you know, now fast forward, I look back and I'm like, oh damn, I, you know, all this part of my career just doesn't exist because there's no documentation of it. But very, um, you know, it was a very fun time and, and, who really gets to start their career in the club scene of Japan. It was quite fun. I just wanted to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about the sponsor of this week's episode of Sounds Good, the University of Helsinki. Okay, so if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen this, but I just got back from visiting Helsinki, Finland. And Finland, if you don't know this, happens to be ranked the happiest country on earth. And so I loved getting to spend time in this new country, experiencing the culture and the politics and the education system and all these things that make this country so happy. It was remarkable. And as a part of that, in fact, as a huge focal point of my time there, I got to visit the University of Helsinki. And it was incredible, you guys. Oh my goodness. Uh, Here's what I learned. The University of Helsinki is the oldest and largest institution of academic education in Finland. It's become one of the top 1% of the world's research universities, and it's especially remarkable, this is what I love, because of its focus on seeking solutions for global challenges and creating new ways of thinking for the best of humanity. Everybody I talked to, their studies 
seem to have something to do with, here's how we can make the world better. Here's how we can create human progress. Here's how we can save people's lives. Here's how we can fight climate change. All of these things, it was so energizing. It's baked into the culture of the university. The University of Helsinki has actually contributed thousands of people to the top of the worlds of politics and science and culture and economics. And they also uh, have contributed four Nobel Prize winners to the world. (laughs) No big deal. Okay, so here's what's going on. The application period for the international master's programs at the University of Helsinki is now open. It's currently open. The programs start in August 2019, but you have to apply by January 11th, 2019. If you want to continue your education towards making a difference in the world, oh my goodness, you should absolutely apply. This is the program for you. It's so cool. I'm so honored that they're sponsoring the podcast uh, because I feel like it's such a great fit for this community. You can learn more about the University of Helsinki and apply for their master's program at helsinki.fi slash admissions. One more time, that's helsinki.fi slash admissions. Oh my goodness, do it, check it out. It's so cool. University of Helsinki, study for the world. Okay, now back to the rest of our conversation. I love that artist purity of being like, I don't want to record this. And then in hindsight, it's kind of like, well, it'd be kind of cool, but it probably allowed you to actually create a little bit more freely without that. And I also love, man, I think that some of my favorite people are people with like almost secret successful past lives where they did something incredible and then they started up and did something totally different that's incredible. And you know, they don't even really, they're reluctant to bring up that past thing. You know, it's its just such a small role, even though for a lot of people it was impactful and meaningful. I don't know. I think that's a really, really cool idea. And I think that it speaks to a sense of humility and a sense of adventure and ability to move on and, and you know, conquer new ideas. Yeah, totally. And and for me, it's in the past. You know, I had this past life of being this big VGA in Japan and doing visuals in front of hundreds of thousands of people and it's interesting because people are like, oh, do you ever use color? And I'm like, yeah, I had a whole career in Japan where I use color, you know. Uh, and um, it's it's sometimes when we we think that what we see is everything, you know. We think that, especially with an artist's uh, work, you know, like what they're doing now must be everything. And and we never really delve a little bit deeper than the surface. Hmm. And I I think that's a good reminder also that so often we you know, we play the comparison game and we're like, oh man, I wish I could create art like Chantel. Like I wish that I could just like start drawing like amazing line drawings in black and white. But the thing is that you had half a decade of doing this totally different thing that established this whole platform for you to be able to do this. And and everybody's got to find their own path forward. And I think that knowing a little bit of that backstory helps kind of fight that competitive nature that's in our brains that judgmental jealousy yeah and i i think there's a few things that play with that you know and um you know for example we don't really share the process of an artist so often and that's another reason i love drawing live because if you're drawing live you're exposing the process and by exposing the process you're exposing the work and we forget that a lot of hard work goes into being very good at your craft and for still, still, for some reason, we have this romanticized notion that people are just good at what they do. 
And you know, the more and more you look at or you research into anything, it's like, yeah, maybe someone had an inkling or a gift, but then they've worked at it and they practice at it and they understood their process and then they worked at that and they practiced that. And I think the more that we expose our process as artists and the more that we kind of share the work behind it, people will see that, oh, like, I've got to work at this and I've got to wake up early and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And for me, starting my career in Japan was really valuable because I went to a club every night, probably most nights a week for many years, and I drew for hours. And I drew for hours and hours and hours and hours, all very stream of consciousness drawing and, and digital but now you put a pen in my hand and I can just draw and I don't have to think about where I'm drawing or what I'm drawing or how I'm drawing because I put thousands of hours in in the clubs in Japan drawing stream of consciously. When did your work manifest from the work that you were doing in clubs with color to the way more iconic uh, line style drawing that most people associate with you today? So what happened is in 2008, I went to New York for a holiday. And like anyone that goes to New York for a holiday, you're like, wow, I love this place. I'm going to move here. And so I went back to Japan and I kind of set up my life to then move to New York. So early 2000 in New York, I moved uh, early 2009, I moved to New York. And when I got there, kind of naively, I thought I could just transition my career that I had in Japan to New York. You know, I was big in Japan, so of course I could just go and be big in New York. But when I got to New York, I realized that everything that I had in Japan didn't exist in New York. You know, the clubs didn't exist. My fan base didn't exist. The cultural expectation for visuals when you go out didn't exist. Projectors weren't everywhere. And I, I really realized like, oh, wow, like, I'm going to have to start again. And in, in a way I de-evolved because when I went to places and when I said, Hey, I'm doing this projector thing. And you know, like you put a projector up when the DJ's playing and da, 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 da. Uh, at that time, you know, in 2009, it just, people were like, Oh no, we can't put projector up. It's a fire hazard or we, we don't really do that stuff here. Or, you know, that's maybe you might find it in Vegas, but you don't find it anywhere else. And it just seemed that, something people weren't ready to do and and so I de-evolved because I'm not going to not make art that's what I do and I and drawing is is my thing so I picked up pens again because it's what I had access to and also another thing that happened is when I moved to New York is I, I also naively thought that I would just move to New York you know do these big club events and get a gallery and sell art and you know survive that way and then when I started to meet with galleries, they would say, oh, okay, we love this work, you know, this very detailed drawing I was doing at the time. Where have you shown? And I'd say, oh, I haven't shown. I just come from the club scene of Japan. <laughs> and they would say, well, thank you, but no thank you. And I quite early on realized that there was this catch-22 with art, whereas if you haven't shown, they won't show you because then you don't have a, a, a set of buyers. And, and also you're not going to not make art because they won't show you art. So I found other ways of making but, you, but the question you asked about the drawings is um, what happened is I started to pick up pens and I started to draw, but I started to draw at a much smaller scale because that's what I was doing in Japan with, with pens. And then I started to draw on my bedroom wall and I started to draw on my shirts and my shoes. Uh, and then slowly, you know, the environment plays a big part of, of the work. And then slowly I started to, to draw bigger and want to use bigger pens and 
And I only started using the thicker lines like you see now in 2013. So it's not been too long. So it's actually all the faces and the thicker lines and like the more, I guess, iconic stuff that people are familiar with. It's something that I've only really been doing for a couple of years. It's just happened at a point where uh, people are getting turned on to my work. So then they think that that is the work. But there's a whole other types of work and bodies of work and, and, and other I guess, mediums and, and, and ways that I like to create work. But what you see now is almost like the flag. You know, it's like the big flag that people pay attention to and that they're able to see from far away. But there is a whole other type of um, drawings and, and mediums that I like to use. That's fascinating. And when did you start? A lot of your work incorporates words and specifically one key phrase that seems like it's, it's like a signature phrase for you. Who are you? When did that start getting incorporated into all of these line drawings? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's interesting. You're like, you know, your work contains words, but it contains lines. And, you know, we forget that words are made up of lines. And, and for me, words and lines, it's the same thing. And I'm not really making that distinction between them. So as I draw lines subconsciously, I'm drawing words subconsciously or spontaneously or intuitively. Some of the words, just as some of the characters and some of the lines are reoccurring and and some of them are staples that have always been there. And they're usually affected, you know, the words, the characters, the lines are affected by inv- the environment that I'm in or people that I'm around or, or, you know, issues or opportunities that come up in my life usually reflect themselves as some kind of element within my drawing. And moving to New York, suddenly this phrase started to appear and it was who are you and and this started to appear because I had such a hard time you know I had that classic New York struggle when you move there and you know you're you're so naive that you think you'll get a job so you spend all your money before you get there and then you end up on your friend's couch and you know you, you don't know how to make money because no one knows who you are and in New York if they don't know who you are they don't care who you are and everyone's trying to be an artist and people start telling you, well, you should look at this person and look at that person, or you should try this and you should try that. And you start to get lost because you, you start to listen to people. And, and, and then this phrase, who are you started to appear in my work. And I I think it was because I needed to know that I was being myself and I needed to ask myself that I was being true to myself that day. And, and, and I, I started to write out these phrases, you know, who are you, who are you, who are you, who are you? And I put it on the back of my door, you know, my bedroom door. So before I left my bedroom, before I left the house, I would see these and I would be like, Chantel, are you being you? Are you being true? are you being yourself? And, and the more that I looked at the, the, this phrase, the more that I noticed that quite simply the first three words or the first three letters are W A Y. So then I started to ask myself before I left my bedroom or before I left my house, you know, Chantel, are you finding your way? How are you finding your way? And sometimes the question of who are you is quite a daunting one. You know, who am I? Is this about identity? Is it about race? Is it about this? Is it about that? But when we just break it down and we're like, well, wait, today, how are you going to find your way? Okay, you're going to find your way through this language of lines and words and characters and drawings. Okay, I can do that. And, um, and, and, and then 
it, it almost feels like, okay, well, I need a destination. And, and then this new phrase appeared up in the work, and that was you are you. And quite simply, the first three letters of that are, you know, Y-A-Y, yay. So you're the philosophy that, Chantelle, you're just trying to find your way to yay, that's it. And then eventually I got to yay and you're like, wow, like yay is this place of understanding. Yay is this place of celebration. Yay is this place where you kind of know your path and you know your way, but you also understand that there's so much more to be done. There's so much more to understand. There's so much more to find out. So you have to ask that new question. You have to, you have to go back to that old question and ask it in a new way. And, and that's where the phrase R-U-U came around because people are like, well, what does R-U-U mean? And so R-U-U is just an evolution of this original question of who are you and you find in your way to yay, but then you get there and you have so much more to do and you have to start from the beginning and refresh this cycle. So then you ask yourself, R-U-U. Man, I just got goosebumps. I'm over here taking notes. I'm putting black ink on white paper. <laughs> and I'm. this makes me so happy. This is so cool. I love that, like, I just got a breakdown of this thing that, you know, has been meaningful to me in just the way that I'm looking at it. But then hearing the the deeper intentionality behind it and your heart behind it is so, so cool. Okay, so so basically that's, like, the artistic side of things. That's, like... The metaphorical side, that's the side of, you know, what everybody can take away. But but what did this look like for you? You know, you move to New York and you're asking yourself, who are you? And you start finding your way at that moment. What did it feel like? You know, what was the way of you finding your way? Like what was going on in your actual world? Yeah, you know, in my actual world, it was quite a struggle. And, and um, you know, I was... Like I said, for the probably the first year and a half when I moved to New York from Japan, I was staying on different friends' couches. And it's very fortunate that if you're an artist, people are more inclined to let you sleep on their couch versus, I guess, being a lawyer or something like that. So I was sleeping on couches. I was kind of bartering here and there for like different foods, uh, you know, for lunches and stuff. Um, and then just trying to figure out how to, to make it as an artist. And, and I moved to New York on an O1 visa which is like an artist visa and it it meant that I couldn't just go and get a part-time job I actually had to try and make the art thing work so I basically struggled probably for a year and a half and didn't really figure it out and then decided to leave New York but then when I was about to leave I was like well why did you come here in the first place you know and uh, and 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 then you remember like oh wow like I did come to New York for like all these cliche reasons. You know, I came for the people, I came for the energy, I came for the opportunities. And then that's when I realized that, oh, wow, like I've been waiting for someone to give me the opportunities that I worked for myself in Japan. You know, I've been waiting for someone to give me the career that I made for myself in Japan. I've been here waiting for someone to give me uh, a gallery or to give me money or to give me that and to give me this. And once I realized that, I realized that I actually had to go and create my own opportunities. And the only way I could do that is by using what I had access to and stop playing the if game. You know, a a lot of us will start playing this if game. If I had money, I'd do this. If I had a mentor, I'd do this. If I had an investor, I'd do this. If I had a studio, I'd do this. If I had this, if, 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 if. You know, you have to, I, I had to, you had to, I had to, you know, we all have to stop with the ifs and, and just break it down to, well, what do I have now? 
Who do I have access to? What do I have access to? And that's when I just started to call around and be like, hey, I'm an artist. Can I do a show in your space? Or I would ask friends like, hey, I'd love to do some of the work that I did in Japan. Do you have a space? Do you have a space? Do you have a space I can use? And eventually someone said yes. And and then I started to do my own shows and, and invited the very few friends that I knew at the time then. And, you know, did what I knew what to do and and like these kind of shows I was doing in Japan. And, and the great thing about New York is that yes, there are a lot of artists here, but not a lot of artists are actually out there making work. So if you go out and find a space and do what you do and you invite people to do it, people in New York love to talk about things that are cool and they like to talk about things that they see. So if you go out and you create something, then they're going to tell someone else and they'll tell someone else. And then you do another event and then they'll tell someone else. And, and eventually, you know, things started to pick up and people would call me and be like, hey, like I heard that you do this thing, you know, can we hire you for that? So, you know, so things behind the scenes, you know, when I'm writing this kind of like, who are you phrase, uh, for a long time, a year and a half, a, a very tough. And then and then towards the end of that, when I was just about to give up and then kind of had this this profound moment of knowing why I came, things started to pick up because I started to put the work in. Mm. And do you feel like you were finding your yay at that point? Like, was that what you felt your yay was? Exactly. You get to that moment of yay because you're like, yay, like, this is what I do. And to to create opportunities, you have to make them. And you have to pretty much make them for yourself because no one's going to give you things. No one's going to imagine things for you. No one's really going to care for you. And, you know, maybe they will. But I'm, I'm talking about myself at that time in, in New York where you have to just create your own opportunities and do that by using what you have access to, what you can actually reach, what you can actually touch and then branch out from there. Wow. This, this is absolutely beautiful. This seriously, this is making me so happy. Like I've, my notebook is just like filled with like doodles and words and who are you? And I I feel, it feels great. (laughs) And I love learning all of this from you. You know, I want to wrap up this conversation by asking for people who are who are maybe dealing with the the big question of if, like if only I had this, if only I had that, if I had a mentor, if I had money, if I had this opportunity, what would you recommend to them to fight that if? How can they push back against that so that they can find their way and then find their yay? One of my favorite words is today. What can I do today? You know, who can I call today? What can I show today? And especially if you're trying to do art, it's about making and sharing, making and sharing, making and sharing. Okay, so how can I make my work? If I don't have access to these materials, what materials do I have access to? How can I share my work? If I don't have access to these galleries or X spaces, what do I have access to? Is it my local coffee shop? Is it my living room? Is it a friend's living room? What do I have access to? Because the whole point is if you make it and share it, make it and share it, make it and share it, you involve more people into your world over time. And also another thing that I think I learned over time is that there's no rush. There's really, really no rush. And, and you want to take your time. You want to have a long career. And you're going to have a long, successful career because you do things that you're proud of. You're not rushing. You're using what you have access to. You're creating your own opportunities. When things come along, you do the things that feel like they're right. And you don't do the things that feel like they're wrong. And then one day you're going to wake up and look back and have a very coherent career that you're proud of. Okay, how great is Chantel? 
If you haven't already, make sure that you're following her online. And I was just thinking about this. Give her a search on YouTube to see a little bit of the behind the scenes on her process. And while you're at it, go and check out her site at chantelmartin.art. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you enjoyed this conversation, you would also, oh my gosh, you would love my conversations with Amber Ray, who I've actually had on the podcast twice now, and Mira Lee Patel. These are two artists who I deeply admire, who inspire me with their sense of wonder. You can find all three of those episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button to keep on getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to your phone while you sleep. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show. You can learn more about what we do at Good 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 and check out our good newspaper and our good newsletter and all of our past episodes by visiting goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and ask some big questions this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good? 